All right, we are beginning a brand new book today, and that is the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Pentateuch, and good news is that we have finally come out of Leviticus and all of the laws that we looked at with Leviticus. We went through all of the sacrifices in Leviticus. We went through all of the clean and unclean. We went through all of the moral laws, the the Day of Atonement, all of the feast days. So Leviticus was a book full of law. So the good news is we're out of law and we're picking back up the story, the narrative that we left off when we were in the book of Exodus. Just to catch us up, uh, we're connecting and going back all the way to Genesis with Abraham and the call of God on his life and the um, covenant that God made with Abraham through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would first of all bless Abraham, that he would make a great nation out of Abraham, and he would bring Abraham's descendants into a land that was promised to him. So we've seen that God has made true on his covenant to bless Abraham and to make a great nation out of him. Uh, Abraham's descendants, Jacob, and his sons, 12 sons, moved down to Egypt because of a famine in the land. Uh, And then they stayed in Egypt and they became enslaved. They did grow. They did uh, build a big family in Egypt and they were seen as a threat to um, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. So Egypt enslaved the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, in Egypt for 400 years. And then we went to the book of Exodus, and we picked up in Exodus, and God brought his people out of Egypt through the Passover, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And it was there at Mount Sinai we had this marriage covenant uh, where we had uh, Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law of God. Uh, And it was an awe-inspiring sight with the mountain burning with fire. And while Moses was up on the mountain, the people made an idol and they rebelled against God. And the whole plan almost went off course there. However, God had mercy on them. He gave them instructions on how to build a tabernacle. He made ways that could uh, cover their sin and provide an atonement for them so that they could still be God's people, even though they were sinful and He was holy. Uh, So we left off in Exodus with the building of the tabernacle. God's presence had filled the tabernacle, even so much that Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle. And then we kind of stopped. And we have been at Mount Sinai for a long time. We went through all of Leviticus, which was the reading of the laws. Well, now we've come to Numbers. And Numbers is when we pack up, pick up, and start moving toward the promised land. For God made good on his promise of the covenant to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. Now we're thinking covenant again and moving toward the promised land. So we're going to pick up in Numbers, and what we're going to see in Numbers is that things still don't go according to plan. Uh, The same people in Exodus that created the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai are the same ones who are going to cause trouble again. And just this relationship, we said from the beginning, this family of Abraham, God chose a dysfunctional family that became a dysfunctional nation that God had to keep providing for uh, in the midst of their sinfulness. 
So we're going to jump into the book of Numbers uh, and pick up where we are in the story as we pick up from Mount Sinai and finally move on from this mountain. So our introduction on our page is almost a year at Mount Sinai. So we're here almost uh, over a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. After almost a year at Mount Sinai, Israel is ready to journey to the promised land. And Numbers tells how the tribes were organized for this march. One of the things that we're looking at in the book of Numbers is, uh, first of all, the, the census of numbering the people and then the organization of this nation. And that's really what we've been doing the entire time or what God has been trying to do for Israel this entire time is organize them to become this great nation. But here's what we have to remember. We have to remember that these people started off as slaves and they have to go from slaves to conquerors to go into a nation and to conquer that nation. So God is bringing them from slaves to conquerors, from people with a slave mindset to people with a overcoming mindset. And we're going to see that this is not easy. We saw when they came out of Egypt, what did they first do? They started complaining. They remembered how good it was. They had a problem handling freedom and being a free people. And we're going to see that is a continual problem and ultimately leads up to a, a tragic scene and a tragic outcome for many that were here in Israel. So God is trying to take this people who were slaves, not just make them free people, but make them conquerors and conquering other nations. And that proves to be a difficult task. But part of that forming of this nation and forming of this people from slaves to conquerors is, number one, their identity. And that's what God is doing. That's what Yahweh is doing. He's showing them their identity. First of all, connecting their identity with Him. You know, when He made the covenant at Mount Sinai, you know, I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So them as a people and as a nation, their identity was founded upon what God did for them in the Passover and in bringing them out of Egypt. You know, for us as the people of God, as the church today, we find our identity in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. So that, that, that's where kind of we in Israel kind of you know, have a, sa a similar mindset or what the mindset God is trying to give to them is that their identity was founded in Him. Our identity is founded in Christ. So in the organization of this nation, we have number one, God trying to give them an identity. Then God gives them a law. He gives them boundaries. He gives them what His people are to do and not to do, how they are and are not to live, how they are to be distinct from the other nations around them. So He gives them boundaries as His people. And now He's organizing them through the tribes and how they are to march into battle. For the whole purpose of counting the census is to see the males that were able to go to war. So he's organizing them, not just as a nation or a family, he's organizing them as a people of war that can go and to conquer. So this is a large undertaking that Yahweh has taken with this group of people to make them not just into a nation, but a great nation that will move from slaves to conquerors. And again, in the book of Numbers, just like we saw in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, 
um, things don't go smoothly. Just like we saw with, with Moses, what we saw with the people coming out of, of Egypt, things are not going to go smoothly. So we are in for quite a journey in the book of Numbers. So before beginning their journey, the individual tribes must be counted and organized and each assigned a position in the order of march and in the encampment around the tabernacle. They had to be camped around the tabernacle in a certain spot, and we'll look at that in, in next week. Um, the Levites, though, were not counted among the tribes. Uh, the Levites had a special position, of course, as priests, as we saw in Leviticus, but they were responsible for carrying the tabernacle and carrying its furnishings. The Israelites begin their journey northward when the cloud, the glory cloud, lifted from above the tabernacle. And when the cloud moved, the people were supposed to pack up and move. They were supposed to go with God's presence. And in the span of only a few weeks, they should have, that's the key, they should have reached the promised land. Um, but along the way, here's where things start to go off the path. and We're just telling the narrative to get the whole overview of numbers. Things start to go wrong when the people complained. They first of all complained about their hardships. They complained about their diet of manna. They complained about Moses. They even complained about Moses's wife. And then to escalate this complaining, we have the negative report of 10 spies that had went out to spy out the promised land. There were 12 spies that went. The spies came back. Ten of them had a negative report, and the people believed the negative report. They rejected the promised land because of the unbelief that they had in God. And because starting with their complaining, starting with their complaining about food, complaining about Moses, complaining about his wife, and even Miriam and Aaron entered in on that complaining as well. And then because of the belief of the reports of the spies, the ultimate rejection of the promised land that God had promised them, God condemns the nation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire adult population would die. And that is the tragic event that happens here in the book of Numbers that the generation that came out of Egypt would not enter the promised land. But God would still be faithful to His covenant. And He would bring His people into the promised land, but they would wait for a whole generation to die out and a new generation to be born before that happened. So at the end of the 40 years... The Lord Himself proves faithful by giving the Israelites uh, ultimate a victory uh, on Transjordan, on the east side of the Jordan. As the years of wandering came to an end, both Miriam and Aaron die. And Moses, here's another tragic event, Moses is disqualified from leading the people into the promised land. Uh, that he would not enter the promised land either, that Moses would not see or stand in the promised land. Um, until the transfiguration, and then he did. Uh, but before the new generation entered Canaan, they would be given additional instructions about political and religious matters in the Promised Land. So that's kind of how the story, how the narrative goes in the book of Numbers. So the good news is, is that we're picking back up on the story and that we're on the move again. We've left the book of law, and we're back on the, the journey again. However, our next book is Deuteronomy, and we go right back into what we came out of in Leviticus. 
as well with uh, the reading of the law and the blessings and curses and, and all of that. But we'll get to that later. But the book of Numbers, the main idea in the book of Numbers, and there's a lot of little theological uh, pieces that we can draw from the book of Numbers, but the main point in the book of Numbers contrasts God's faithfulness with the faithlessness and the rebellion of the Israelites. So it's contrasting the faithfulness of God with the faithlessness and rebellion of the Israelites. The former, God's faithfulness, is seen in God keeping His covenant promise to make Israel a numerous people and to make them a great nation. And that is shown in the numbering of the census that we see that now they are a numerous people as God promised to Moses or as to Abraham. And Moses receives... um, the sad news that he won't enter the promised land, but yet there's a whole generation. There's another generation, the second generation, that will enter. So this is a great multi-generational nation now. Uh, The latter part, Israel's faithlessness, is recorded by Israel's grumbling about their living conditions, the rebellion against God's leadership, and their refusal to enter the promised land. Thus, the people tested God at every level even while God provided for their needs. That's the amazing thing, and that's why we see that we even see God's grace come through here in the Old Testament. That yes, there was times that God was angry, yes, there was times of judgment, but ultimately as a people, God is faithful to His promise and He blesses them, He provides for them, and He's faithful to them because He's faithful to His Word. And he's faithful to his covenant. So that's kind of the story and the main idea. So keep an eye on God's faithfulness, even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, that God is still providing for them in order to fulfill his covenant. Now about the book of Numbers itself. Uh, The book of Numbers is the fourth book of the Pentateuch. And as we've been talking about, it continues the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, the covenant ceremony of Mount Sinai, and the journey to Canaan. The book highlights the wilderness testings. That's what the middle part of the book takes up, is the, the, the wandering in the wilderness. Uh, it takes up the wilderness testing and rebellion of the covenant people during this formative period of the Hebrew nation's relationship with God. Remember, they're, they're still learning how to be God's people. They're still learning how to follow Yahweh and who He is. Uh, The title of the book, of course, in our Christian Bibles, the title is the book of Numbers. Now, originally in Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, which is what our Old Testament is, it's the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, the title from that is taken from the first verse of the book of Numbers. And the Hebrew title is In the Wilderness. In the wilderness, and it's the Hebrew word for the phrase in the wilderness, which is taken from verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. So uh, the Hebrew Bible title is in the wilderness, and the Christian title or the, the, the Greek title comes from the Greek word that means arithmoi, which t- is taken from the censuses that were taken. So there's a census taken at the beginning of the book and a census toward the end of the book in the numbering of the tribes. So uh, the Greek Old Testament comes from the, from the word uh, numbering, it's a number of the tribes. 
Uh, Arithmoi, you may look familiar as arithmetic, uh, but then the Hebrew Bible is in the wilderness because the events take place in the wilderness. Uh, according to the date formulas given to the Pentateuch, the book of Numbers covers a span uh, of over 38 years and nine months. This period of early Hebrew history is commonly known as the wilderness wanderings that we will talk about. Uh, the book of Numbers, as a literary, because we look at the literary forms of the book, as we said, the one good thing about Numbers is that we're back on a story. Uh, we're back narrative. So there's a lot of the book of Numbers that is narrative and that is telling the story of the Hebrew people. But yet, interspersed in all of the narrative, you know, we will find law. You know, there's still portions of law interspersed throughout the book. Um, so even though there's a cohesive pattern and a cohesive story, uh, there are legal sections, historical narratives, and records of censuses in a pattern that appears to be almost arbitrary, just no rhyme or reason to why. Uh, some scholars view this book as very disorganized, even though there's, we can trace the story uh, from an organization standpoint. Uh, it's oftentimes seen as a very disorganized book because you'll be reading along in the story and then, well, up out of the middle of nowhere, we're talking about unclean people and uh, confession and restitution, and then we're right back into the story, and then up comes more law. So, you know, we have to you know, be on our toes when we're reading to recognize, you know, we're reading story or we're reading law and how the book jumps in and out of that. All right, let's turn to the next page on our paper and talk about the, uh, the stages or the scenes that we have in the book. And this will help us when we're reading to truly understand what we are reading. So the stages of the book. The events associated with the desert trek of the first generation of Hebrews after the exodus from Egypt are narrated in three distinct stages. Okay, so there are three main stages to this book. There are three major scenes to this book. Now, between those three scenes, there are two interludes. And the interludes describe what happens on the journey from one scene to the other. So the first scene is the scene of preparing to leave Sinai. The book begins where we're still at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is a 20-day period from Mount, at Mount Sinai from the completion of the tabernacle to the taking up of the cloud of guidance, and it begins with a census. Uh, so the first scene is preparing to leave Sinai, it takes place at Sinai. Then the interlude, the first interlude, is when we leave Sinai going over to Kadesh. All right, so before we go further in our outline, I want you to go to the next page, the page with the colorful map. Now, how many of you know we love maps and charts here on Wednesday? It helps us to know where we are at. You know, if you want to know where you're at and where you're going and you've never been there, a map is helpful. So we over here probably aren't familiar with that you know, area of the world, so a map helps. Okay, so looking at the map, starting at the very bottom of the map uh, is where the traditional location of Mount Sinai is. And, and if you notice, uh, way over here on this side uh, is where Egypt is. They came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, came down to Mount Sinai, and that's where we've been for a year. Now it's time to trek north. So as we trek north, you see Kadesh Barnea right there. So the first scene takes place at Mount Sinai. The first interlude is where we're going north through the wilderness of Paran up to Kadesh 
Barnea. And then you see this circle right here. That's when we wander in the wilderness for 40 years before making the way north up to the plains of Moab. So I want you to be kind of familiar with where we're going. So when you, know, you read about these places, you'll have an idea on the map. We start down here at Mount Sinai. We trek north to Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. We're wandering around. And then finally, we're making the trek north up to the plains of Moab, uh, right on the bank of the uh, river Jordan across from Jericho. So uh, I want you to see this map. Um, so back over in now, and really, before we leave the map, this should be like a two-week journey. You know, if you take a straight shot up there, it should take about two weeks. But we're going to end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. So um, let's go back to our paper over here on the second page, the back of the first page. Uh, the stage of the book. So the first scene is Sinai. Then we first interlude is where we leave Sinai, and we're going north to Kadesh. And then it is there that we have the second scene in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea, where we have the almost 40-year sentence of wilderness wanderings from Sinai to Kadesh for the first generation due to their rebellion and unbelief. So scene number two is where Israel rejects the land, God judges them, and they wander around in the wilderness. Then toward um, the end of uh, the 40 years wandering, we have interlude number two, where we're going to trek back north again from the wilderness to the plains of Moab. So from the wilderness to the plains of Moab, we're going to head to Moab. And then the third scene is Israel settles across from Canaan. So the three major themes or the three major scenes are Sinai, Kadesh, and Moab. That's where the three places take place with the two interludes uh, traveling from one place to the other. So the final scene is a six-month duration when the second generation after the Exodus journeyed to the plains of Moab, containing a second census, and that takes place through the rest of the book. So um, there's our three major sections, our two interludes. You can also look at the book as a book of halves. The first half deals with the first generation that came out of the land of Egypt, but that generation dies in the wilderness. And then the second part we see can talk about the second generation or the new generation, those 20 years and younger. So a whole generation dies out. So this book can also be seen as two halves. The first half dealing with the first generation, the second half dealing with the second generation. Both, uh, both sides of the book are marked by a census. There's a census in chapter 1 and there's a census in chapter 26. Uh, and there's also a lot of parallel themes in those two sections, a lot of parallel themes. Um, I had, a, I had a list that I could have printed, or a chart I could have printed out, but I decided not to do that. But uh, the first half marks the eventual death of the old generation that came out of Egypt in the Exodus, while the second half introduces a new generation of Israelites preparing to enter the promised land of Canaan. So now let's look at the content of the book, and we've got it numbered, the bolded uh, areas on the uh, content, the outline, uh, correspond with the areas at the top of the page. So number one, we have the preparation to leave Mount Sinai. 
Uh, so in chapters 1 through chapter 10, we have the preparing to enter the promised land, and we begin with a census. Again, we begin with counting up all the people from all the tribes, and the reason to do this is to number the people for battle. It's to number the people for battle because we're going into the land to conquer the land. In Numbers chapter 1, uh, let me just read this very quickly. Verse number 2 of Numbers 1 says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So that's uh, the reason we're doing the census here, to, to count up the people and the males to see who can go to war. And then we, uh, then we go into the arrangement of the camps. After we talk about the, ex, uh, talk about the Levites and their place in this, we uh, go to the arrangement of the camps and how they will march through the wilderness and the order that they will go. Then when we get to chapter 10 through 12, we have this first interlude. And this is the journey from Kadesh or from Sinai up toward Kadesh. They depart in the order, in battle order, that they will march in. Then it's in this first interlude that things start to go bad. Uh, and we have three main complaints uh, here from the people. First of all, is over the meat and the food. If you remember, that was one of the first complaints that they had. First of all, is the meat and the food. Um, so they said, remember what we ate back in Egypt, and you brought us out here, and we're eating this manna. We don't know what this manna is, so God, uh, he, we'll see what he'll do uh, to, to answer their complaint there. Then we have Miriam and Aaron actually murmur against Moses, and then the people murmur against Moses himself. So this interlude, the journey up to Kadesh, is where we start to get off track a little bit. Then from chapters 13 to 19, we have the 40 years near Kadesh wandering in the wilderness. And in chapter 13 and 14 begins the culmination that started with the complaining and started with the murmuring against Moses. And this is when the spies go into the land. We talked about it uh, for a few minutes uh, a little bit ago. But 12 spies were sent out into the land. God told them this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a plenteous land. It's a good land. Uh, and he sent spies to the land, and the spies spy out the land and come back. Well, two spies come back, and they say, We are well able to overcome this land. Let's go forth and take it. And then the ten other spies, they said, Well, it is a good land. It is full of milk and honey. However, it has walled cities. The inhabitants of it are giants. And it says that we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And the people believe the report of the ten spies that they can't go in and overcome. And ultimately, because of that, they reject the promised land. And God is angry. And it is here at this point that when the people believe the negative report of the ten spies that God becomes angry and He gives them this judgment. And again, this is one of the tragedies that we find here in the book of Numbers. So I want to read from Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verse number 22. And this is God's judgment. Numbers 14, verse 22. 
None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. The only ones were Caleb and Joshua that were able to enter the land. Down in verse number 29, it gets even more bleak when God says, Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. So not only would they not see the promised land, God made them wander for 40 years so their dead bodies would fall in the wilderness, that they would die there in the wilderness. Now that is a sad picture. You know, and at times I'm like, well, God, couldn't you just left them at the Mount Sinai and let everybody else go in? Did you have to kill them all in the desert? But that's what happened. That was God's punishment and judgment for their unbelief, for their hard-heartedness, for their rebellion, for their sinful attitudes. And again, as we've seen in Leviticus, God takes these things very seriously. So the people did not believe Moses. They did not believe God. They did not believe Joshua and Caleb. And therefore, the whole generation that came out of Egypt would not go into the promised land. They were slaves that God wanted to make into conquerors, but they still had a slave mentality. They still had a mentality that they could not overcome. And it was their mentality and their hard heart through their unbelief in Yahweh that they've seen do amazing things. I mean, this was the God that brought them out of Egypt miraculously. They watched Him defeat the the greatest nation in the world and defeat their gods and, and publicly humiliate a Pharaoh. He saw them part the Red Sea. He provided for them. God did all of these things for them, but yet they didn't believe God. So they would die in the wilderness. Then you have a generation 20 years old and younger. Now this generation did not know Egypt. They were never slaves. They weren't born yet. In fact, this was a generation that was born in the wilderness. If you're wandering 40 years in the desert and you're 20 years old, that means you were born in the wilderness. You were born in the desert. You were never slaves in Egypt. So it's this new generation who didn't have that slave mentality, even though they were not perfect themselves, and we'll see how they rebelled against God. That new generation was the one led by Joshua and Caleb that would go into the promised land. So Joshua and Caleb were the only ones because they believed God. And we honor that, you know, Joshua and Caleb. You know, when I used to preach this uh, years ago, I would talk about Joshua and Caleb and their faith and how they believed God that they could overcome. And Joshua and Caleb, we name our kids. This is Joshua. This is Caleb. You know, they're popular names. Why? Because Joshua and Caleb believed God. There were 10 other spies. Anybody know their name? No, we don't know the name of the 10 other spies. We don't care to know their name, even though it's listed there. We don't want to name our kids after them. Because they didn't believe God, but Joshua and Caleb did. So this is the judgment upon that 
generation. That marks number two, the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Then when we come down to 2b, we come to chapters 20 to 22, and that is the journey from Kadesh. This is finally toward the end of the 40 years, and it's the journey from Kadesh north to the plains of Moab. Here is where um, you figuratively, not just literally, but also figuratively see that generation dying out. You have the death of Miriam, Moses' sister. You have Moses striking the rock. He was supposed to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock and he became disqualified from leading the people into the promised land or himself entering into the promised land. And then you have Aaron's death. And that's kind of marking the end here of this 40-year period. Uh, And then you have the people, and this is that new generation. Um, They themselves rebel against God, and God sends fiery serpents, you know, to bite them and punish them. And God tells Moses to make the bronze serpent and to to lift it up and have the people look at the bronze serpent, and they are healed. Uh, So that happens here in chapter 21. Uh, So 20 20 through 22 is kind of this end of the 40-year period, the journey up toward the plains of Moab. Then, our, then number three is our third scene, and that is in the plains of Moab. So this is when Israel kind of settles here, right at the Jordan River, not quite entering in yet. Um, we have this prophet Balaam, and the prophet Balaam is sent to prophesy uh, against Israel because the king saw uh, Israel coming and wanted the prophet to prophesy against them. But we'll get into the story. It's an interesting, fascinating story. Uh, as he begins to prophesy negatively, he actually prophesies for the nation of Israel. And of course, we'll talk about Balaam's donkey uh, and all of that as well. Uh, then also, once they get up to Moab, um, the people again turn their back on God and they begin to mingle with the women of Moab and be influenced by the, the gods of Moab, which was Baal here. Uh, or more properly pronounced Baal, uh, but we call it Baal uh, down here in, the, in America in the south. Uh, but Baal worship, and they begin to give themselves to Baal worship. Uh, and again, you know, Israel just can't get out of their own way. But even in their faithlessness and rebellion, God still provides for them. In chapter 26, another census is taken. Um, they finally have the defeat of Midian. Uh, so they finally win a victory now. Now they are overcomers. Uh, and then we have some more laws, laws about land and campsites to end the book of Numbers. So it is an interesting journey, and I can't wait to kind of dig into some of the details. You know, a lot of us know some of these stories that we know about the 12 spies, we know about Balaam's donkey, we know about Moses striking the rock. But what I want us to see here is how this all fits together, you know, and how it fits together in the picture here of the book of Numbers and how we're progressing forward on our way to fulfilling God's promises, ultimately on the story of redemption, on the path of redemption leading up to Jesus. So on page number two, the page that the map is on, uh, I want to I end today looking at how Numbers, the book of Numbers, influences the New Testament uh, because there are pictures and scenes from the book of Numbers in the New Testament. Uh, first of all, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is preceded and is framed by the story of the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21. 
Uh, so, of course, John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world you know, that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, but the verse before that in John 3.14 and 15 says this, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So we see that Jesus himself uses the book of Numbers. So it's good to have a working knowledge of the book of Numbers and what happened with Moses and the serpent so we can understand what Jesus is saying. Because of the fiery serpents that came upon the people, God told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent to lift it up on a pole and have the people look upon it. And Jesus says that that is the picture of him being lifted up on the cross. That, we have, that while we have all been bitten by sin and are dying and are spiritually dead, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, what He did for us, all we have to do is look upon Him and put our faith in Jesus. And we will see that we will be healed. So Jesus uses the book of Numbers. Uh, Balaam, that prophet, is used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 111. Talk about a, a prophet that was a greedy prophet. Uh, and then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about the doctrine of Balaam. So it's good to know a little something about uh, Balaam because that's brought back over in the New Testament and used as an example. And then the verses we'll end on to, today is I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you will go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to look at you know, what we can draw from this story, what we can draw from the book of Numbers, and see how Paul uses the book of Numbers. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1, let's just start with verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 says this, For I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. So the same spiritual food, the manna, the same spiritual drink was the rock that provided the water. It says, For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And this is amazing. That rock was Christ. The spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. But it says in verse number 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So based on the story of numbers here, listen to what Paul says. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that's taken from Exodus 32, where they fashioned the bronze serpent, eating and drinking. Verse number 8 says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's Numbers 25. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's Numbers 21. And verse 10 says, Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's Numbers chapter 16. So Paul says these things are examples to us that we don't desire evil like they did. Because, 
You know, these, these are people in Paul's day that are receiving Christ, that are coming into the new covenant and believing Jesus. And Paul says, Don't be, let's not be like that generation. Let's not be led astray by the same things they were being led astray on. For then Paul says this in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on who the ends of the ages have come. They were written down for our instruction on who the ends of the ages. Now when Paul says the ends of the ages there, he's talking about the ends of two ages. I want you to think about a board. Think about like a two by four. You know, it has two ends. There's an ending here and an ending here, and it's a board. So you have the old covenant that had started way back here at Mount Sinai and has come all the way through, and the, new, the old covenant is you know, still in effect here when Jesus comes. And, and then you have the new covenant, and the new covenant is another board. And during this time period of the first century when the scriptures are being written and churches are being planted and the gospel is being spread, you have these two ends of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant kind of overlapping. And this is a kind of a period where to whom the ends of the ages have come upon. So Paul says we're in this, this time where it's the ending of the Old Covenant age and it's the beginning end of the New Covenant age. And we are the generation transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from law to grace, from Mount Sinai uh, over to Mount Zion, from law into grace, from Moses to Jesus. So let's not be like them because some of them couldn't make the transition. Some of them could not make the transition from Egypt to the Promised Land. They fell in the wilderness. So Paul is saying, let's not be like that generation that kind of came out of Egypt but could not go into the promised land because of their hard hearts. Let's be those who learn from their example and not do that so that we by faith can enter into the promised land. And he ends verse 12 saying, Therefore let anyone thinks that he stands, uh, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. So 1 Corinthians, Paul uses what goes on in Numbers. And then the last scripture that we want to look at today is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. In Hebrews, chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews also uses the example of the children of Israel that perished in the wilderness. If you go to Hebrews, chapter 3, and verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness. So we're talking about the book of Numbers. He says, Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So in the wilderness, it describes as the day, of, as the time of rebellion, where they hardened their hearts, and God promised they would not enter into my rest. For the promised land was a land of rest. Cities they didn't build, houses they didn't build, uh, vineyards they didn't plant, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, a life of, of plenty and goodness and blessing. That's what God wanted to give them, but they could not enter. So the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. The book of Hebrews is written as a transition book. 
transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. So there are those hearing about Jesus that are on the fence whether they're going to go all the way with Jesus or go back into Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is using this generation, again, that came out of Egypt, but because of the hardness of their heart and their unbelief, they couldn't go into the promised land. He's using them as an example. So he says, don't, there, don't let there be a heart of unbelief or evil in you, but exhort one another as it is called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ indeed. We hold our original confidence to the end. That's why he said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who was it that heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Who was those who were provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. They could not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Now going into chapter 4, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... The writer of Hebrews is saying, even in this day, the promise of entering into God's rest still stands. Now, here in Hebrews and in the New Covenant, the promised land is not a land, is not a physical land, it's not a piece of real estate. In the New Covenant, in Jesus, the promised land is a promised life. A promised life of rest in the finished work of Christ. A promised life of a blessing and abundant life that Jesus promises us. And he says, that promise still remains. Now that promise has moved from real estate into a person, but the promise of rest still remains. He says, so let us fearless, any of you should seem to fail to reach it. He says, so don't get halfway to Christ. Go all the way in your faith and believe. Don't fall away through an unbelieving heart. He says, for good news came to us just as it did to them back in the wilderness. He says, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He says, They heard the good news. The good news of what? The good news that there's a promised land. The good news that there's rest. He said, But they didn't mix that good news with faith and believe God and trust God to go forward in the journey. And then the writer of Hebrews in verse 3, chapter 4 says, For we who have believed enter into rest. We who have believed have entered into the rest of the promised land. As he said, I've sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, although he had a finished work prepared for them, they couldn't enter. He said, but when we believe, we enter that rest. We enter into that finished work. Though his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day, saying, and God rested on the seventh day. And again in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. And then in verse 11, he ends by saying, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the writer of Hebrews is warning this generation don't be like that generation. The generation that came out of Egypt, but they, Egypt never got out of them. That, that's a good statement. They came out of Egypt, but Egypt never got out of them. And their hearts were hardened. They chased after 
other gods. They disobeyed, they rebelled, and they fell in the wilderness, never receiving the promise. The writer of Hebrews says, let us receive the promise. Let us believe. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, let us not be like that generation. Let us hold fast our confidence in Jesus. So that's what we get from the book of Numbers. Just as it's a transition book, going from uh, Sinai into the promised land, let us learn well from them. We want to be like a Joshua and Caleb. We want to be like those who believe God, who rest in His finished work, who receive the blessings of a promised abundant life in Jesus and live life to the fullest. So that's kind of our New Testament. I went ahead and did that first uh, so we can have that in our minds. So that's kind of how Numbers relates to the New Testament. So again, that's just an overview of what's going on here in the book of Numbers. Uh, I think it's going to be a great journey. So we're going to jump into Numbers, take this journey with the people uh, of Israel and see, uh, dig deeper into their relationship with God. So I want you to kind of go through uh, the book this week, familiarize yourself, even if you don't kind of read through the whole thing, just kind of go and pick out some of these major sections uh, and parts so that when we come back together, we can uh, have a clear picture of how we can jump right in uh, to this journey as we're journeying from Sinai all the way to the promised land.